Let me make one addition to Mike's announcements. Uh, the marriage seminar, sign up over there. Today's the last day to do that, so if you're going to do it, uh, see Chelsea right after the service today. Today we finish the Old Testament. Give yourself a hand. We got through it, okay? That's... I think it's been a good, sometimes long trek through the Old Covenant. I know I've benefited from it. I know a lot of people have, and I hope you have. And I'm looking forward to next Sunday when we get into the New Testament, and the series starting next week will be called Jesus for President. Today, I'm going to focus on Nehemiah and the enemies and the opposition that he faced. I consider Nehemiah one of the greatest leaders and difference makers we have in the Bible. His story has served as a model for leadership both within and outside the church. Let me begin with a timeline leading up to, to him. In 2000 B.C., remember way back, Abraham, father of the Jewish nation in the book of Genesis. Then around 1500 B.C., give or take 100 years, Moses leads the exodus out of Egypt, gets the Ten Commandments. He leads people to the promised land. And then around 1000 B.C., King David uh, is at the height of the glory of the nation of Israel. And those were the best of times under King David and then Solomon. And then we have civil war around 900 B.C., the division between north and south, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and we've got two nations, Israel's in the north, Judah in the south. 722 is the fall of the north uh, to Assyria, and pretty much they're unheard of from now on. They're, they're wiped out. 586 is the fall of the south to Babylon. Jerusalem's destroyed. The Jews are carried off to captivity. The city is pilfered and set on fire. The success of David is a long-gone memory. By the time of Nehemiah, the city lies in ruins. Now, 555 is when the Cubs won the World Series. Some of you remember that. Great moment in history. <laughs> and then 539 B.C., Babylon falls to Persia. Persia becomes the dominant world power. And Cyrus was a tolerant king, and he allows displaced people to return to their homeland. So by the time of Nehemiah, some of God's people have moved back to Jerusalem, to the homeland, but many of God's people did not go back. They stayed in Persia. They had families there and built homes, so they just stayed. Nehemiah is one of those that did not go back. And he's around 445 B.C. when he goes back. Now, in the return from exile back to Judah, there's three critical things that happen in Jerusalem. One's rebuilding the temple with Zerubbabel. This was the focus two weeks ago in chapter 19. The sacrificial system is reestablished, the priesthood reactivated, the temple's rebuilt. It's not as spectacular as the first temple, but it lasts longer. Another main happening was rebuilding the walls with Nehemiah. The focus of this week's chapter is, is this here, uh, among other things. But the walls were critical to protection and the well-being of the city. Before they were rebuilt, the city was in terrible shape and the people were suffering a great deal. So they needed that. And then the third main event was establishing the word. And Ezra was the main person in this. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So the Bible is firmly reestablished and becomes the foundation once again for the people. So all three of these endeavors going on, and all three of them face pretty severe opposition and some enemies. If you are doing the things of God, you will be opposed. Not might, you will be opposed. Doing God's will is a blessing, but it is seldom easy. In my devotion time this past week, I was reading out of Hebrews, which kind of gives a summary of the Old Testament that I just gave you. It's called the famous faith chapter, Hebrews 11. Starting verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? 
I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered, mount, uh, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And I, wow! Victory after victory. You know, it reminds me of the old hymn, Faith is the Victory. But then reading on, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning and were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. So a lot of bad things happened to God's people too. If you are intent on doing the will of God, you will experience some glorious times, some victory, but you will also go through difficult times. Now, Nehemiah, when we meet him, is cupbearer to the king of Persia. And the main job of the cupbearer was to taste the wine and the food before the king ate and drank. And if any of it was poisoned, cupbearer dies. Doesn't sound like a great job, but because of the importance of that position, an intimacy usually developed between the king and the taster. In fact, the cupbearer often had great influence on the king. In some countries, the cupbearer was the second most important position in the nation. He was bodyguard, he was the assistant, security agent, often a confidant, and very well trusted. So Nehemiah is a very trusted person. He's probably good looking too, by the way. One Old Testament scholar mentions that the cupbearer was often chosen for his personal beauty and attraction. So Nehemiah is in a position of influence, probably pretty well paid, probably good looking. He, he's, he's successful. He's got it made, as long as no one tries to poison the king. Everything's good. Then he gets this message, verse 2, chapter 1, page 295 in your story. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa in Persia, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah and with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So the people of Israel are experiencing economic hardship. They have no security. They have corrupt leadership. The walls are in a shambles. They're, they're poor for the most part, and there's high taxation. And Nehemiah, when he hears about the shape they're in, what's he do? Breaks down and weeps. Here's one of the first things about a great leader and a difference maker. Nehemiah is a man of great passion. He mourns, he fasts, he prays. Actually, we have a picture of Nehemiah, what he looks like. Now remember, he's good looking, but he's also sad. And this is kind of what we have. Good looking and sad. Uh, by the way, Logan is on corral trip with LCU. So he's going to be, he missed today and he'll be missing next week. And you might be praying for him. Nehemiah sits down, he weeps, he mourns because he's a man who cares. He's a man of passion. See, every difference maker in history, every great person has had some deep response to some brokenness in the world. They see a need and it just guts them. Most of the great stories are not about super talented people but rather about the highly motivated people. Remember, Nehemiah is at the peak of his life. As, I mean, he's not going to get any higher in the kingdom than where he's at. He's, he's successful. He's on easy street. The problems in Jerusalem are a million miles away. He's probably never been to Jerusalem. 
and he decides he's got to do something. There's something in his gut says he's, he, he's got to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And all through this book, when you read through it, he's got obstacles and enemies on all sides. And there's three things he does to overcome these enemies, three things that you and I can do to overcome opposition. And number one is pray a lot. If you count the prayers in Nehemiah, 11 times he cries out to God. And sometimes his prayers are long, like Nehemiah 9 is actually the longest prayer, recorded prayer in the Bible. Other times his prayers are very short, like four words. Chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Now strengthen my hands. That's all he prays. Paul in the New Testament tells us to pray all the time. In a few weeks, we're going to emphasize a time of prayer and fasting like Mike mentioned. And Nehemiah is a great example for us. By the way, you'll be getting a letter about it to explain a little bit more here in a couple of weeks. But anyway, there's three things in this prayer in chapter 1 that I think all great relationships have to have. Three ingredients, and these are all very important to our prayer life as well. The first one's in verse 5 where he says, where he prays, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. First thing he does is dress God and glorify him. Okay, he's adoring him. Great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. See, in any good relationship, you want to say good things about that person. If it's a friend or a family member or a spouse. I like it when Ellen adores me. Some of my favorite words I like to hear are handsome, good preacher, brilliant, cool, brave, athletic. I like it when she says those words, and I hope she does someday. Just kidding, she's, she's great. But if you want a good relationship, you do some adoring. Uh, prayer includes adoration. You want a good relationship with God? Do the same thing. When we sing, we're adoring God and praising Him. It's healthy. It's, it's a good thing to do. Then in verse 6, second thing. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Here's the key. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave our servant Moses. Second part of a healthy prayer is admitting. I'm sorry. Confessing our weaknesses, our shortcomings. Again, in any good relationship, there's got to be a time where you admit, I was wrong. Now, I'm all for encouraging kids and building their self-esteem. But sometimes I think we tell the kids from day one how great they are and wonderful and super and stupendous and, you know, in t-ball, everybody gets a trophy because you're all winners and that's okay. That's okay. But there has to sometimes be an admission. I'm not always great and I'm not always wonderful. And sometimes I have to admit I'm wrong. Good parents will admit their weaknesses. I, I hated apologizing to my kids. I still do. Just don't like it at all. But I noticed one thing. Whenever I apologized to my kids when I was wrong, it always broke down a wall and opened up for a better relationship. And we admit our failures to God to break down walls. God forgives, but the admitting is critical in our healthy relationship with him. If you want to pray well, you have to adore and you have to admit. Then verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. 
Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Third aspect of prayer is asking. Give me success. He's going to go before the king of Persia and ask for permission to go back to Jerusalem. And all through this book, Nehemiah is praying and asking God, sometimes begging and pleading for help. In every phase of this story, he's talking to God and asking him for something. Now, most of us do pretty good at asking, all right? We're not very good at the adoring and the admitting part. But I do know some people who have a hard time with the asking. They think it's selfish. But actually, asking is a form of dependence and admitting that I need some help. Well, after he gets to Jerusalem, he encounters these enemies. Chapter 4, page 296, says, When San heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life with those, from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stone. So, so they're being ridiculed, and they go through this. This is going on all through the building process, ridicule and threats and danger. What's Nehemiah do? Verse 4. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. First thing he does is go to God when he faces enemies. Now, he does a whole lot more than pray, but he doesn't do anything else until he prays. Without prayer and without God's help, Nehemiah will not overcome his opposition. How many of us are too busy to pray or too distracted? How many of us really don't think it'll do any good? I want to show you a prayer that proves God answers prayer on video. And today it is? Yeah, see, God answers prayer. All right, very good. Okay. <laughs> uh, I love that video. Anyway, if only we could pray like that. Nehemiah shows that before anything else, we need to take time to be with God. He prays, God, you take care of these enemies. You take care. He turns them over to God. And then in the next verse, verse 6, he says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. He didn't just pray. Here's the second thing. They take action. Now, earlier, when opposition threatened them in chapter 1, it says, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were all very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it, but... We prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. They do two things. They pray and post a guard. See, some people stop at prayer. God, you take care of this. God, you got to do something. God, help, 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 help. But God wants you to take action. See, you can pray about your finances and ask God for help, but you need to do something. Get some help. You can pray about your marriage, but you better do something. You know, go to the marriage seminar. You know, if you want to overcome your enemies or opposition, you need to be willing to take some action. 
It's fine to lay in bed at night and pray, God, protect us from burglars. Don't let anybody break in. But you need to lock the door. It's good to pray for a safe trip, but you also buckle your seatbelt and quit texting. <laughs> Get off the phone. Do, you do the prayerful thing, but you also do the practical thing. Now, I'm going to chase a bunny here for just a little bit. Nehemiah's on the receiving end of a lot of criticism and resistance through this book, maybe more than any other book in the Bible. So I want to give you some truths about criticism and opposition. Number one, being a critic is easy. It's easy to point things out, see things are wrong. I, I think I could criticize every one of you. I know, I know you well enough, I could, okay, and you could find one in me too, or more. It's easy to sit on the sidelines of a ball game and boo. Faults are the easiest thing to find. Referees at a basketball game, you'll be sitting there and I think, who'd want to do that job? I don't want to do it. I umpired a little league game once, never again. It's not as easy as it looks. I think referees and umpires are crazy. <laughs> Just kidding. One show we watch fairly often uh, at our house is Wheel of Fortune. And when they can't figure out the puzzle after we've figured it out, how come they can't get it? Boy, they're dumb, you know. It's so easy. You know, are they blind? Or if they make a bad decision and buy a vowel when they shouldn't, you know. It's easy to sit in the comfort of your couch at home and, and criticize. But then, I think, you know, if I were there in front of the lights and the big audience, knowing millions of people on TV are watching and thousands of people from Mount Pulaski are watching and the TV cameras, you know, are on and Banna and Pat are there, I doubt if I'd do much better. It's easy to criticize a player on the field, you know, what a bonehead play, but you try it. It's easy. Making a difference is hard. Criticizing is easy. Second thing about it, opposition and criticism isn't always bad. See, people who oppose you will force you to think things through, uh, will test your resolve, you know, is this a good decision? Am I doing the right thing? Sometimes my best helpers have been critics. Some opposition is okay. Some opposition is used by God, I believe, to energize us, to unify us, to keep us on edge. And, and so it's not all bad. In fact, if there's no opposition, you know, like in a church, I think it's a sign of apathy. No one cares. And maybe it's a sign you're not doing anything if you're not opposed by, any, uh, by anyone. I don't want a church where there's no opposition and no difference of opinion or whatever. It's easy to keep peace in a cemetery. I don't want to be in a cemetery, okay? Third thing, some opposition is legitimate. There are times the critic is right. Just because someone opposes you doesn't mean you're evil or doing wrong. So we shouldn't ignore a complainer or criticizing with, without asking, okay, is this legitimate? You know, maybe there's some truth to it, not all the truth. You know, you know people who criticize might have a point. So I thought I'm gonna, I would give you some guidelines if you're going to be on the criticizing end. If you want to criticize you know, someone or oppose something, here's what to do, how to do constructive criticism. Now, it's been said that constructive criticism is what I give to you, and destructive criticism is what you give to me. Well, that's not the case at all. Here, here's what to ask yourself. Before you criticize, ask, am I really helping someone? Is it really constructive? I, I had an elder come to me once, and I mentioned this once before. I was doing some annoying and distracting things while preaching. And <laughs> Shut up. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was not aware, oh boy, watch your language. Uh, I was not aware of it, you know, and it really helped. I heard of one preacher, it wasn't me, believe it or not, that was picking at his rear end while preaching. And I hope somebody said something to him, okay, it would really help. So is it really helping? Was I asked for an opinion is another question. It's not the end of the world if my opinion is not known to everyone. Did you know that? 
Now, there's actually a t-shirt that you can get. Everyone's entitled to my opinion. No, they're not. Okay? Sometimes just keep your mouth shut because no one asked you. So that's another thing to ask. Is it my place to speak? Maybe I have a responsibility to say something to someone like my kids. Uh, it's my place to correct them or maybe oppose them on something. But I've always had a hard time correcting someone else's kids. I don't think it's my place. Now, if I have to, I will, and I have. But generally speaking, it's hard to discipline someone else's child unless you've been given permission to. Another question, am I speaking in love? Am I doing this because I really love this person? Or is it because I'm angry or jealous? Or, you know, what's the motive? If the motive is wrong, the criticism is probably wrong. And then ask, is the listener ready to hear? For instance, don't criticize any staff person on Sunday morning. They got enough on their mind, do it on Monday, okay? I tell Ellen, don't criticize me until Wednesday because by then I can handle it, and by then she's usually forgotten it, so that works out really well. Some opposition, some criticism is helpful, but sometimes it's destructive, and if you are doing the work of God, Satan will use people to discourage you. Uh, Sanballat does not love Nehemiah. He's not trying to help him. It is not his place to speak. I mean, he fails the test in every one of these questions. He is not doing constructive criticism. So the first thing Nehemiah does is pray, and then he gets the people to act, and they do the prayerful thing, and then the practical thing, and then the third response to opposition, refuse to quit. We know there's opposition. We know there's critics. We know it's going to be hard, but that doesn't matter. We're going to keep going on, keep keeping on. We refuse to be distracted, and through all this, they continue the work on the wall. Nehemiah 4.15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Verse 21, so we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. In other words, they kept going. If you quit, the opposition wins. I've seen marriages that look like they were on the teetering point. But today they're healthy and strong because they refuse to quit. I've seen parents of teenagers throwing their hands, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do anymore. But they refuse to quit. And teen turned out okay. It may have taken a few years, but they did. I've seen churches that were struggling that today are a light in their community because they refuse to give in. People who make a difference hang in there. They don't give up. I think it was Calvin Coolidge who said, press on. Nothing can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are the overwhelming power. One of my favorite preachers is John Maxwell. He tells about a lady that was part of their bus ministry, and they, the buses would pick up children to come to church every Sunday for Sunday school and worship. And during the week before Sunday, they would go out knocking on doors to see if kids would ride the bus. And there was one home that this lady visited 90 times until the family finally said yes and let their child be picked up for church. 90 times. Where does the devil want you to give up? Where are you tempted to throw in the towel and let the enemy win? Is it a dream? Is it a marriage? Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's witnessing to your neighbor. Um, if you know that that is what he wants you to give up, Satan wants you to give up, what should you do? Pray a lot. Take action. 
Don't give up. Let's pray. Lord, you didn't give up on us. Thank you. And I thank you for Nehemiah's example of prayer and perseverance and action. And whatever obstacles and trials we might be facing, I just pray, Lord, you'll give us the strength and we will be trusting in you to sustain us. Thank you for your love. We pray this all in Jesus' name.